You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 55, and I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Before I begin today, I just wanted to take a moment and say to everyone listening that the topic that I covered today and the subject matter that I discussed today is sensitive, not for everybody. It might make you uncomfortable. It might offend you. It might challenge what you believe to be true about the world. So I wanted to put that out there at the very beginning. I will be talking about human trafficking and child sex trafficking today. My experience encountering human trafficking and child sex trafficking in Mexico and Guatemala and about my experience coming back from Mexico and Guatemala and trying to articulate and express what I experienced, what I saw, what I encountered, children and people that I talked to in my travels and in my time living in Mexico. So if this is a topic that makes you uncomfortable, I would suggest that you stop listening right now. Or if you want to listen further and you just want to make sure that your kids aren't in the room or you're in the car with the kids and this is a topic that you don't necessarily want them listening to until you have time to listen to the podcast and then you can kind of digest and translate it for them, I'm letting you know now. So let's go. In 1996, I was 24 years old and I traveled to Mexico to live at a mission and work voluntarily as a volunteer at an orphanage. And where I lived at, at that time, 1996, it was still rural Mexico. Tourists drove through the village I lived in on their way to Cabo San Lucas, but no one stopped on purpose in Vicente Guerrero or in the Colonia Vicente Guerrero, where I lived at. And when I got there at 24, I thought that I had the world figured out. I thought I knew what's what. I knew good from evil, right from wrong. I was usually on the wrong side of the street because of my addictions and my alcohol abuse, because of my criminal behavior and the way in which I conducted myself and the choices I made. So when I was going through an identity crisis during that year leading up to my leaving and going to Mexico, all of a sudden I went from an atheist to believing in God. I went from a person who was somewhat comfortable with my use of alcohol and drugs, even though I knew by the age of 23 that I was out of control and that inevitably I was going to die before I was 25 of an overdose or someone was going to kill me or I was going to kill myself. And I had resigned myself to that fate. At that point, at 23 going into 24, I knew that I had reached terminal velocity as far as my alcoholism and drug abuse, and there was no turning back. So there was a lot going on for me that year from 23 to 24 until I got on an airplane and flew to San Diego and then got on a bus, traveled to the border, crossed the border, caught another bus, traveled to another city, got another bus, and then finally was dropped off at my destination. What I encountered during almost a year living in Mexico opened my eyes to the broader reality of what it means to occupy 
space in this world to be a citizen, not just of the United States, but metropolitan in a certain sense, being a citizen of the world and seeing myself not as an American, but as a human being living in a foreign country where I had no rights, no legal appeal, but rather I was there at the privilege. I enjoyed the privilege of uh, the local constabulary and those around me who supported me, taught me, took me in, educated me about the language, the culture, the history, everything. And one of the first things that I encountered that really blew my mind was other addicts. And I've discussed it in the podcast before in the past, but I was asked to be a uh, kind of a guard the front gate for a newly established drug and, and alcohol rehabilitation center. My job on the weekends while Goyd was training to get his visa, because in Mexico at that time, I'm sure it's the same now, in order to get your visa, you have to uh, train in the army and be a part of the reserves. And so Glenn had to do that on weekends for, I think, nine weeks at that time. And so when he was gone, he asked me if I would watch the men that were there attempting to detox and to dry out and to get sober. And it was one thing to go into Mexico thinking, oh, poor me, and I'm so abused, and I'm so sad, and I'm a victim, and therefore everything that I'm doing is my dad's fault, or it's society's fault, or it's somebody else's fault. But I'm not responsible for my alcohol and drug abuse. And then meeting other people who sold their clothing for liquor. And when liquor wasn't available, they would sell their clothing for hairspray, and they would drink the hairspray. That's when I discovered that there are levels to addiction, and I had not even approached the lowest level that I could go as an addict. I thought I had, because I was so much about myself, that I didn't look around at the other addicts I hung out with. The crack addict who was my friend in St. Paul, leading up to my leaving um, America to go to Mexico. And then her friends who are meth addicts and crack addicts. The criminals that I ran with. Then I got to Mexico and I experienced that true addiction, true bottom of the well, nowhere to go but down. I'll sell everything I have, even my own clothes, to drink hairspray kind of addiction. So that was really the first thing that opened my eyes to the broader reality that I was privileged, that I was blessed to have been from where I came from. And despite the abuse and despite the addiction that I grew up surrounded by, I chose to drink, I chose to use, I chose to blame others for my choices and my decisions. I chose to see myself as a victim at that time. And so being responsible for these men, stopping them from jumping the fence and running into town and getting more alcohol, being responsible for fixing their food, sometimes feeding them because they had the DTs so bad, they had tremors so bad they couldn't even hold a spoon to scoop soup up to their mouth. And I had to feed them. I had to lead worship with them. I had to teach them basic, basic things that you do as a man that I had just taken for granted up to that point that they could not do for themselves. And what's interesting about that story is that years later when I went back to Mexico, I discovered that at least six of them all became pastors and built their own churches. 
throughout the valley where we all started together at that drug and rehab center. Those six made it. Most didn't. Most ended up dead in a gutter or in an alley. Either they OD'd or they got stabbed or they got shot or they got beaten to death. The second thing that I was exposed to that I want to address today is that I saw child trafficking for the first time and I saw widespread sexual abuse and the rape of children for the first time when I lived in Mexico and then later when I went to Guatemala. And the reason I want to talk about this is because since 1997, when I came back to the United States, no one wanted me to talk about this. No one wanted to listen. And I was told either A, I don't want to talk about it. This is uncomfortable. I just, I don't want to discuss this. Or I was told that I was actually exaggerating and making things up. So for over 20 years, I've been told family, friends, coworkers, people in the church, people outside of the church, this isn't a topic that I'm comfortable talking about. This is not a topic that I want to pick up. I don't believe you. No one could be that evil. And finally now, finally, after all of these years, especially this week of July 13th, 2020, the week of my birthday, it's coming out more and more and more now. More and more information is coming out from all over the globe about human trafficking and child sex trafficking. And finally, people are starting to wake up. People that called me a conspiracy nut and call me a liar for years are now posting on their social media about child sex trafficking and human trafficking. And that's what I wanted to talk about. For decades, for two decades, no one wanted to talk about this. No one wanted me to discuss it. No one wanted me to write about it, do a podcast about it, speak in public at a conference about it, especially not in front of teenagers and college students. So for decades, I've been shut down about this. And now finally, people are saying, oh, you're not crazy after all. Oh, you're not a conspiracy nut. Oh, you were telling the truth. And yet, they're only willing to go so far, the people that I talk with. Part of what I did as, as a missionary is I was on an outreach team. And every day, depending on my work schedule with teaching music and with choir and my other responsibilities at the clinic, I would go on outreach with the team at 4 or 5 o'clock. And most of the outreach we did was within the valley that we lived in to about 30,000 people altogether during the height of the growing and picking season because they would bus in immigrants. I'm sorry, they would bus in migrant workers from southern Mexico for the growing season in northern Mexico, and then they would bus them back to southern Mexico for the rest of the growing season because the two growing seasons were on opposite ends of the calendar. So farmers and ranchers would make deals with each other to share migrant labor. It was cheaper. So for half the year, for six months of the year, there were 30,000 people in the valley. These people didn't know when they were born. Most of them didn't know to read or write. Most of them didn't even know their own age. And that was one thing, to learn that, to see and speak with these people every day at the clinic. But to go into the migrant camps and then go, go outside the valley, further into rural Mexico, further into and up into the mountains, the further away we got from the valley and the mission, the rougher it got in the villages and the camps that we went to. 
we did outreach and we took care of people medically and provided clothing and food and education for people that their village was in the dump. And that's how they got everything they had. They dug through other people's garbage. That was their responsibility. And that's how they, like I said, that's how they accumulated their possessions. And that was heartbreaking to be 24 years old and think that you've got it all figured out and then to see a child playing with a toy that they dug out of the garbage at the dump and realizing, having the light go off, that that is as good as it's going to get for that four-year-old right there who's not wearing pants. He owns no pants and is wearing a shirt. No pants, no socks, no shoes, just a shirt. And is dirty and has dried snot on his face and has sores on his legs that's as good as it gets for him. And what we're bringing as far as medical supplies and clothing and everything that goes with it, that's as good. It's Christmas. And because there were so many people, you could only go to these villages or these camps once, maybe a month, depending on how close they were to the mission and how big they were. Because there's only so many doctors, there's only so many cooks, there's only so many educators, there's only so many people that can go on these outreaches. And the local landowners, the la local farmers and ranchers who owned the land that these people lived on, if they were migrant workers, had a rule that we were allowed to come in and provide for these people so long as we didn't teach them how to basically read or write to the extent that they could think for themselves. Because these landowners didn't want these people getting the wrong idea and thinking that they could better their lives. So, for example, we were never allowed to take anyone for rides in the car or the van because the landowner didn't want the people to find out about driving and learn how to drive because they might steal a car or a truck and then drive away. And there was the added bonus that on one side of a lot of these ranches were strawberries or tomatoes or whatever, and the other side was marijuana. So they also had a vested interest in protecting their crops. But once you left the valley, like I said, and you went deeper out into the mountains and into the more rural areas, it got rougher. And there was one village in particular that no one wanted to go to. It was over three hours away from the mission. You had to leave in the middle of the afternoon because, and I'll get to this, you couldn't stay there past dark. So as soon as you got there, you had to hustle and get everything done and then get out of there before it got dark. And the only person that would go up to this village in the mountains was a guy named Norm. And Norm's was, Norm was the groundskeeper for the mission. Norm was an adult convert to Christianity. Previous to that, previous to moving to Mexico and living permanently on the mission. In fact, Norm died while I was there, shortly after I left. But what Norm and his wife Irma did when they moved there, Norm had gotten out of the Navy. Well, before he was in the Navy, he was a heavy drinker. The Navy didn't help that. And then when he got out of the Navy... He became a, a Skid Row drunk in Los Angeles. He was literally a drunk, and he lived on Skid Row. And he did this for a long time, over two decades, I think, until he met Irma at a sobriety meeting. And they both ended up becoming Christians and dedicating their lives to the service of others, and in particular, because they didn't have kids themselves, although they had both had kids by previous marriages, they decided that they wanted to dedicate their life to helping orphans. So they hooked up with this mission, they moved to Mexico, and that's what they did. Irma ran the clothing shop where all of our donated clothing went. And that's where if you needed clothes, you went there and talked to Irma. And she would set you up and Norm was in charge of the grounds. And to say that Norm was crusty 
there would be an understatement. Norm was the burnt tips, if you're familiar with barbecue. Through and through, 100% of Norm's personality was burnt tips. He was grumpy. He didn't like people. He definitely didn't like Americans or Canadians. There were a couple Mexican nationals that he could tolerate and have a conversation with. But Norm was up before the sun and in bed after the sun went down every day, except Sundays. And Norm, for whatever reason, fell in love with the children of this village up in the mountains. But it was a rough village, like I said. And I was warned as soon as I got to the mission about Norm coming around knocking on my camper, that no matter what he says, don't go with him to this, this camp, to this village, because it's the roughest. The kids throw rocks at you. They hit you with the sticks. The men don't like us going up there, and you're always in danger of being punched or kicked or attacked by the men. So you got to be careful. And Norm's the only person that's brave enough or foolish enough or faithful enough to go up there. And it's a three-hour trip, and he always picks the worst truck or he always gets the worst truck from the motor pool with no shocks. Usually the truck that you're worried the engine's going to blow up before you even get up the mountain. The roads up the mountain are passable at best. They're not even really roads. They're kind of like sheep paths. It's not a good, it's not a good scene. None of the women at the mission would go to this camp regularly. It was that dangerous. And the reason that this village, this camp was dangerous was because all of the men in this village systematically raped their daughters and the girls of the village. And this had been going on for so many generations that the daughters and the girls were raped and then sold to other men in the village. And then those men um, got them pregnant and they gave birth and then they raped their kids. And it had been this endless cycle, this whole culture of, of rape that existed in this village. And as long as you didn't mention this, they would allow you to bring food and medicine and clothing and toys and candy for the kids. But if you brought it up, they would attack you and they would drive you out. And so I did everything I could to avoid Norm on the day, I think it was like Thursdays, he would come and knock on my camper. I'd just pretend not to be there or I'd make up an excuse. But finally, one day he came to my camper and he essentially shamed me into going with him. So it was me and at this at this time, too, there were about six of us that went, six or eight of us that went. And there was actually a couple of women that were brave enough to go with, Mexican nationals. So we went. It was, like I said, over a three-hour trip up into the mountains. We went. It was exactly like he, I was told. Kids threw rocks at our truck and our car. And then as soon as we got there, they surrounded us and demanded and were pulling at us and trying to take everything that we had as far as medicine and clothing and everything. The adults stood back and did nothing. The women were um, behind uh, the tent or the doors of their... They weren't houses. They were corrugated steel and wood strapped together, nailed together. It was rough. It was a rough, rough place. And you're looking at these women. You're looking at these girls... And I'm sitting there, and I am talking with these children, and I'm helping with medical checkups, and I'm helping hand out the clothing, and I'm helping prepare the food, hand out the food. And I am talking with girls that I know are being raped every day, every night. 
and I'm not allowed to say anything. And I'm looking around at the women and when they're given permission to come out and get food and to get clothing and so forth, knowing that they also themselves were raised this way. They were raped when they were children by their parents and by other men in the village. And I'm not allowed to say anything about that. And that's kind of the point is that when I encountered that, and there are many, many other stories I could tell about Tijuana, for example, and what I saw in Tijuana on Fridays and Saturdays and all the American men that flooded across the border on Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays into Tijuana. I could tell you about how they set up human trafficking and child sex trafficking in Tijuana. How the Mexican drug cartels either kidnap or buy children to then use them in the sex trade or for labor or for body parts. I could tell you about the hunting parties, not just in Mexico and South America, but in Europe and Southeast Asia, in India. I said it, hunting parties. They buy children and they hunt them. And they skin them. They eat them. They make shoes out of their skin. And you say to yourself, well, that's impossible. No one could be that evil. Read about the Nazi prison camps and what the Germans did to the Jews and how they made furniture out of their skin and lampshades out of their skin and what those German doctors did to those Jewish boys and girls. Read about China today and what's happening in concentration camps in China today and the rape camps where the, the Uyghur Muslims, the women and the children, are raped by the guards systematically every day and the men are castrated and loaded onto trains and forced to work in factories. There is more slavery in the world today, more human trafficking taking place in the world today, more child sex trafficking going on right now today than in the history of the world. And yet we never talk about it. 800,000 children go missing in the United States every year and it's an epidemic and we don't talk about it. Children are bought and sold on the streets of America and Canada, Mexico, every country in this world, every day. The number one producer and consumer of child pornography in the world is the United States. Who do you think floods across the Mexican border, not just at Tijuana, but at Mexicali and along the Texas border? Who is it that, which direction is, is the traffic every weekend to go across the border to procure a child that you're going to rape. It's not from Mexico up to the United States. These are men from the United States going into Mexico. And not just here. Haiti, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, all over this is happening every day. It's recorded now. It's on social media and the internet. You can't get away from it. And yet, why do we choose still to ignore it? Why do we choose to turn a blind eye to it? Why are we not burning down our cities in protest at what's happening to our children? I saw it in Mexico. I was told about it. It was offered to me in Mexico. If I wanted to buy a child in Mexico, I was told who to talk to and how much it would cost me to buy a child, to get papers, a fake visa, a fake birth certificate. And in 1996... It was less than $500. I could buy 
a child in Mexico, a baby, and get a fake visa and a fake birth certificate for under $500. When I was in Guatemala in 2001, the same thing was told to me. I could literally walk outside the airport in Guatemala City and buy a child with a visa and a fake birth certificate. I didn't even have to go look for it. It was just there, like a street vendor. All you had to do is know who to talk to, and they offered it to you as soon as you got off the plane. And I came back, like I said, and nobody wanted to talk about it. Everyone said I was exaggerating or I was lying. That it's impossible. There's not villages in the mountains of Mexico. There's not villages in rural Mexico that women and children are systematically raped and the whole culture is a rape culture. We did outreach at camps where when we left, the gypsies went in, I'm like gypsy gypsies, and they would set up a tent like a circus tent, and they would play pornographic movies and serve alcohol and sell every kind of sexual perversion you can imagine for the cost, essentially, of a dollar in American money. And I saw them setting up several times, and I saw that anybody who paid was allowed into the tent, including children. So you're exposing five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 13-year-olds to pornographic movies, pornographic paraphernalia at that age, and you're normalizing perversion. The number of kids that I talked with and sat with who thought that what was happening to them was normal, or at the very least didn't complain and wouldn't complain because they were afraid of the consequences, because they knew what the consequences would be. The foster homes and the orphanages that I know about, that in the past at least, were used for human trafficking, were used as prostitution rings. Because there's no oversight. And in many cases, the local police the local constabulary, the local politicians are all involved in the human trafficking and the child sex trafficking. They're participating in it because they're working with the drug cartels and they're paid and they're bought and paid by the drug cartels. So you want to say something, you want to complain, you want to go to the newspapers, fine, then you disappear one night or maybe your kids disappear and you never see them again, but you know where they end up. They end up at the end of the road as you get off the off-ramp going into old Tijuana. Go all the way to the end of the road. Go all the way to where the kids are. Go to that hotel, that motel with those 12 rooms. And in one of those rooms, that's where your kids are at. Go ahead and try and get them out of there and see what happens to you. I've talked about this for decades. I saw it with my own eyes talked with people who were a part of it, who grew up in it, who were terrorized from the time they were four years old until they were able to escape. And they, you meet them as adults, and they thank you for the kindness and the love that you showed them that you don't remember because you're 24 years old and you're screwed up and you're just trying to figure out how to be sober. And they remember you as a caring teacher and as someone who listened and was always joking around and was an example of Christian faith to them. 
and you hear their stories. And like I said to my wife last night, I don't know how someone with no faith can go into that darkness and walk out of it and not be held captive by it. Because that was 1996 through 2001. It's 2020. And it still haunts me. That's why I'm talking about it. Because if we don't talk about it, if we don't look evil in the eye and acknowledge that it exists, that satanic evil exists in the world objectively, that's how the demons end up running the whole show. That's how evil men and women end up in positions of authority and power to create a system where human trafficking and child sex trafficking goes on in public, right in front of our faces, on social media. And everyone says what? Well, they're, they're just joking around. They're just telling, you know, perverted, gross jokes. No one actually does those things. And yet, if I were to say back in the Middle Ages this happened, most people would say, well, yeah, it was the Middle Ages. It was a terrible time. Or the Dark Ages, or Nazi Germany, or the pogroms of Russia. Pogroms of Russia. Or Pol Pot's killing... Like, if I put it back in history at some point where it's safely abstract and not in your face, most people could say, yeah, that was terrible. Those people are disgusting. They're monsters. But to then say it's happening in your community today. Well, no, that's not, that's not possible. To say that children are sold every day for sex, for labor, for parts, that they're hunted, hunted for sport by adults who bought them for that purpose. Well, that's impossible. That's disgusting. That's monstrous. That could never happen. Well, it does. And it's been happening for a long time. And we all chose to ignore it or to say, well, you're exaggerating or you're lying or you're a conspiracy nut or that's disgusting. How could you imagine those things? I didn't imagine those things. I saw those things. I heard those things. I was told those things. And that's why I'm talking about it. Because it's horrifying. And as a father, as someone who was abused, as someone whose wife was abused, it's always on my mind, and I'm always praying about it, and I'm always thinking about it, and I'm always hoping that eventually somebody wakes up that I can talk to about it and point them in the right direction and say, here, go in this direction, do more research, go down the rabbit hole, figure it out. It's so much worse than you can possibly imagine. Especially in America, where it's a constant battle against evil men and women who are attempting to normalize pedophilia and pedophiles. So one of the people that I'm going to point you to today, if you're interested in this topic, but I understand, I mean, I do understand why people are reluctant to get too close to this subject because it is so horrible, so ugly, satanic, however you want to apply that term. Because like I said, I saw it, I experienced it on so many levels in different places. I've talked with former prostitutes who were caught up in sex trafficking in the United States when they were 18, 19 years old, who got out of it, who were rescued. And they tell me the same stories here about the United States and what happens in the United States. So it's not just Mexico or Guatemala or other places like that, Haiti. 
it's every country, everywhere in the world, like I said, more people are trafficked today. More children are bought and sold every day now than ever before in human history. It happens every day. But the media doesn't cover it. Politicians hardly ever address it. And the ones that do, they're not given any coverage by the media. Why? Why not more questions? Why is this not of utmost concern and a priority for every law enforcement agency in the United States? Why are there not international efforts to destroy these human trafficking and pedophile rings on the internet and geographically? Why are we not going after more of these pedophile rings and these human trafficking rings? If you think that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are the worst of the worst, again, you're deluded. They're not even close to the top 10 worst of the worst in the world on these things. What do you do when you encounter true evil? Like real, true darkness. Because I touched it. And it touched me. And perhaps in a way then, thinking about it now with you, that's why I am the way I am about my kids and about other people's kids. Why I'm so protective, why I do so much and dedicate so much of my life to educating my kids, making sure my kids are empowered to defend themselves, to recognize predatory behavior online and just in general, to know what to look for. But for me, it starts with that as a parent, as a pastor, to provide the kind of example for my children and other people's children of strength, of courage, of kindness, of a protector to say, when you're with me, you're safe. To provide an example of an adult, of a man who's a father, who makes that a priority not just for himself, but for other fathers, to ask that question, well, what are you doing as a father to prepare your children, to protect your children, to inform and educate and enlighten your children about this? Or are you leaving them helpless? Pray for the predators. That's the world we live in. We can pretend the world's basically good. We can pretend that people are basically good. We can pretend that we can fix this with the right legislation or enough money. This has been going on since the beginning of civilization. We haven't fixed it by now. Politicians, celebrities, professional athletes, heads of state, people who are so wealthy that money means nothing to them. People so powerful that if they just pointed their finger at you, you would just be dead within the day. That's the world we live in. We live in a depraved, fallen world. A world that is constantly threatened by evil men and women who are bent on doing evil. And when that darkness reaches out and touches us, what do we do? Are we the light in the darkness? Or do we run from it? 
or do we surrender to it? In my experience, especially the past 20 years, what I see is a whole bunch of people surrendering to it or running away from it. The world's a dark place, especially right now. There's not a lot of light. So if anything, maybe that's the moral of the story, so to speak, today. Is how can you be a light in the darkness for others? Maybe it's not with human trafficking or child sex trafficking. But what do you see around you where you live at? Where is the evil? Where does that darkness creep around? Where are the tendrils of evil reaching out and touching people? And what can you do to be a light in that darkness? What can you do to be an example of strength and courage and kindness, of moral courage, standing up for the most vulnerable and weak amongst us? Because darkness doesn't restrict itself to boundaries when there are no boundaries placed around it. When you turn out the lights at night, darkness doesn't only surround the light bulb, it fills the whole room. So what are we doing? I've been talking about it. I've been praying over it. I've been staying up to date and informed as much as I can. Again, like I said, hoping that eventually people would learn about these things and catch up and wake up and be concerned, and now they are, and that's fantastic. But at least today I'm going to end with uh, something from Tim Ballard. And Tim Ballard is the founder and CEO of Operation Underground Railroad, which I'll include links to the organization. You can check it out for yourself. You can check Tim out for yourself. I'll include a link to the documentary Operation Toussaint, which is about his work in Haiti. You can watch that for yourself. Make up your own mind, whether it's an organization that you want to support or he's the kind of guy you want to follow what he's doing and, and let that lead you where it may. There's other organizations you can check out. But Tim writes, as I'm driving, I'm listening to a singer who is my favorite singer, who I didn't know him at all at the time, Peter Breinholt. Right as I was approaching the first off-ramp that would lead me to a life of chasing down pedophiles and sex traffickers and everything else, this song comes on that before this moment did not have much meaning to me. It wasn't necessarily my favorite song that Peter Breinholt sang. It's called Lullaby. It tells the story of a parent figure who is talking to a child, who is having some kind of nightmare of something bad happening to them. The parent comes into the room, he soothes the child, and then what the parent keeps saying is, they won't come around here no more. They won't come around here no more. Meaning these monsters, these nightmares. And I thought, you know what? Because of what we did, and again, I didn't do anything spectacular on this case, but because of our efforts, the monsters won't come anymore to this little boy. That's his calling. That's his mission. And he's dedicated his life to that. And like I said, you can learn more about that at the website. You can learn more about that from the documentary. But what are we doing to make sure that the monsters won't come anymore for our children, maybe for the elderly in our community that can't take care of and protect themselves? Maybe... There are other people in your community that are vulnerable. I worked in nursing homes right out of college with mentally handicapped people 
And the amount of predatory sexual abuse that I saw and that I had to stop when I was working in group homes in St. Paul, Minnesota at that time, what was that, 1994, five? Yeah, 1994, 95. It was rampant. Sexual abuse of mentally handicapped people by their caregivers, by other people that they worked with, if they were high-functioning, they had a day job. People they met at the bus stop would prey upon them. And if you're thinking to yourself, that's gross, that's disgusting, that's evil, yeah, it is. That's what I'm talking about. I saw it in Mexico. I saw it in the group homes and how mentally handicapped people are preyed upon. I saw it in the nursing home my grandma was at when she was recovering from surgery and how the residents of that nursing home she was in were being abused. And my aunt, God bless her, went and raised holy hell with the administration. And we got her out of there as quickly as we could. It happens. Sometimes it happens little by little. And people don't even think about what they're doing. And that how they're treating others, their attitude towards others, whether it's they're dissatisfied with how much they're paid, they took the job because they needed work, they're just fed up with the job and they don't care anymore, or they're just evil and they take pleasure in exploiting vulnerable children and people. If we don't stand up and speak up, if we don't hold the line against the darkness, the darkness is going to sneak up on us, flank us, and overcome us, overwhelm us, and defeat us. And there are days when I think to myself, the walls have been torn down, we're surrounded, darkness is pretty much one, and there's nothing we can do about it, come Lord Jesus. And then I wake up the next day, and it seems like, well, maybe there's a little bit of light. Other days, most days, I get up in the morning, and I pray, and I ask that God would make me a light in the darkness. Because I've gone into the darkness, and he led me out. And I've gone into that darkness in prisons, in hospice and nursing homes, in homes where mentally handicapped people are cared for, in foreign countries. I've gone into that darkness a lot, actually, now that I think about it. And by the grace of God, I was let out. But, like I said, it affected me, and maybe it's affected you in whatever way, but that you can't shake it. But for me, anyways, a part of embracing the warrior ethos as I have these past five years. That's a big part of it, is to hold that line and to say, you know what? Today, I decide I'm going to make sure the monsters don't come around here anymore. And I'm going to do whatever is necessary to make that happen. It's like, I don't know if it, Jordan Peterson says, if we don't go and find the dragon in his lair and kill him, he'll come and find us and destroy the village, something to that effect. But it's true. If we don't hunt the monsters, the monsters will hunt us. Go read Grendel. About, I'm sorry, go read Beowulf and, and read about Grendel. They sat in their meat house and they had no stomach for the fight. And Grendel came every night and he came into the meat hall and he murdered them and he ate them. Every day, the monsters come for our children. Every day, 
they take some of them. Every day, our children disappear. Never to be seen again. The poor, the vulnerable, the weak, they're preyed upon every day. And most people have their head buried in their phones and don't care about anything except themselves. So if you're listening to this, take a step back, reflect, and ask how you can be a light in the darkness for others. Like I said, you don't have to go to Haiti or Guatemala or Mexico or halfway around the world to fight child sex trafficking. But maybe you can support someone who does or some organization that does. Or maybe you can do something locally to improve the quality of life for people in your community that you see some injustice occurring where the darkness has encroached and threatens to consume the elderly, the mentally handicapped, the weak, the vulnerable, the poor. And ask, just ask yourself, why do I turn a blind eye? Why do I walk on when I know, when I see, when I hear, when I've been touched by the darkness myself? Why do I avoid it? What am I afraid is going to happen if I confront it? If I turn around and face the darkness, if I turn around and face that bully, that monster, that dragon, what's going to happen? What are we afraid of? And why are we afraid to confront true evil in our home, in our community, in our world? Why are we afraid to pray that God would make us a light in the darkness? Whether you're serving in northern Afghanistan, whether you're working for the Peace Corps in Central Africa, whether you're a volunteer at an orphanage in Mexico, whether you just look across the street and say, hey, there's somebody that could definitely use some light in the midst of their darkness. What's holding you back? What's stopping you from maybe ultimately saying, if someone's going to die today, let it be me instead of him. Let me sacrifice myself so she can live. Because that's ultimately what we're talking about. We're saying, I'm going to step into the darkness and I'm going to stand between this child, this vulnerable person, this person who can't defend themselves. And I'm going to be a shield. I'm going to defend them. And if necessary, I'm going to sacrifice my life so that the monsters can't hurt them anymore. So that's all I got today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for allowing me to discuss what I know is a very sensitive topic for a lot of people and a topic that, like I said, throughout, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. They're not comfortable talking about it. They don't want to confront the reality of it, the depth of it, the depth of the evil that's at work. But it's not going away. These people are not going to stop unless we stop them. So let's do that. Let's push back against the evil. Let's fight against the darkness. Let's bring a little bit more light into this world today. Again, thank you. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.